working our way, maybe you've noticed, through the book of Romans on Sunday night. This is part 21. <clears throat> what a great text we have. Biblical confidence, what we can never know and what we can know for certain. Romans 8, 26 to 30. Let me read this text before we start. Likewise, the Spirit helps us with our weakness. If you backed up in the text, you would see where he's talking about how the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we, we talked about that, looked at that uh, last week and the week before a little bit. So likewise, that's not all the Spirit does. That's what he's saying. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And he's not talking here just... Uh, physical weakness. He's talking about the, the condition we find ourselves in spiritually. An inner kind of a weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness for, here's the weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. We, I mean, we know, we know the importance of prayer. We know how to pray. We have the Lord's Prayer. We have a pattern of prayer. We have instruction in the Word on prayer. But there's still something here that we don't know. Not now, not yet. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. We know what to pray for. We know to pray for daily bread. We know to pray for forgiveness. We know to pray your kingdom come. We know to pray your will be done. We know to pray uh, for God's blessing on our country. First of all, kings, those in a... Th we know what to pray for, but we, but we don't know what to pray for as we ought. In other words, there'll be situations that come up and we're not sure what to do with them. That's what he's talking about. There's a way we should pray in those situations and, we, and, and we're, not, we're not, God, what are you doing? What is happening here? Why are you silent? Why isn't this working the way it should work? We do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I've heard in Pentecostal circles, people talk about that being praying in the Spirit, uh, praying in tongues. I, I don't believe that. I think there are other passages that are better go-to passages than this one. This isn't, this isn't praying in another language. This is, this is prayer without words. Too deep for words. Doesn't, nothing, nothing comes out. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So there's no confusion there. The confusion is on our end. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you believe that? For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We'll, we'll get to this. I'm not teaching on this tonight. But foreknowledge, it's foreknowledge and then predestination and election. It's elect according to the foreknowledge of God. It's not foreknown according to the election of God. Election isn't what starts things. Those whom he foreknew, by the way, we believe, 
we all believe in, I believe in predestination and election. I don't think those are owned by Calvinists. I, those are good Bible words. I believe in both those things. We'll talk about that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So there's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, election. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Interesting the way he puts glorification. We don't have our glorified bodies, but he still puts it in the past tense. That's a fascinating, fascinating thing that he does there. It's hard to miss the contrasting conditions that are laid out in this text. There's, there's things we know for sure, and there's things we don't know at all. I mean, if you look just at 26 and 27, there's that focus on what we don't know, maybe can't know. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. First part of 28. We're, we're, we're kind of caught in time. We're still waiting for the end of the story, the completion of God's work, both in our lives and in the establishing of a new creation. We're still waiting for the end of the story, the completion of our own salvation. We're bound in this, he talked about this futile creation, verse 20. And, and, and here's what that means. I don't always, I don't know always the best way to react to every trial, every situation. I'm not sure all the time what God is doing, though I'd like to pretend I am. So there's these things we don't know. And it makes, well, it makes the life of faith difficult. We pray lots of times in the dark and waiting. Well, waiting, waiting can bring two things. Weariness. It can bring confusion. How high am I supposed to set my expectations in this world? If you listen to some people, you just confess everything and boom. Listen to other people, prayer is just mental gymnastics. There's no God there listening anyway. I mean, there's all sorts of extremes out there. What, what is God up to in the specifics of some of the situations that we go through? And, and how come he doesn't always tell us? Well, he does. Not in terms we maybe are ready to hear. So long story short, 826, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. As we ought. He means, he means we, we don't know, we don't know as well as we would know if the only thing we had to factor in was God and not sin and the fall and creation's futility. If you didn't have to factor all those other things in, well, we'd be a lot more certain, but you do have to factor all those things in. We can't presently see all of the unfolding of, of the details of God's plan for our lives, not the details. And then, and then, so there, there's, there's this 
painting of the things we don't know the way we'd like to know. And you can't avoid that. You can't avoid that. Whatever you might hear from some word of faith teaching, you can't, you can't, right now, so far, you can't avoid that. I can't, you can't. But then in verse 28, there is, as you keep reading, and here's the hope. The tone changes, and Paul begins a long series of these wonderful declarations. And instead of saying what we don't know, he says, but here's what we do know. So we don't know everything, but there's stuff we know for sure. And he's saying, pin your hat there. 28, and we know. No guessing, absolute certainty. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, to those who are called according to his purpose. And, and, and if that weren't enough, he goes, he goes further, if you, if you work down through the passage, about what we know, what we're certain of. Look at verse 38. For I am sure, I like that, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers Nothing else can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's 38 and 39. And so here's what this text does. It's a really interesting study. There are things we don't know yet. It won't do just to pretend we know them. Because God has a wonderful provision for those who admit they don't know them. And then there are things we know for certain. These are the things we need to remember rehearse, relearn, digest, think about again. We have to proclaim them repeatedly to ourselves because they become our strength and our portion. So let's work our way through this. Although we've been a, a big chunk of it is done in the introduction, so don't panic. Point number one. Our present condition is described as a condition of, of weakness, uncertainty, and Paul says it affects our praying. It affects your praying. It affects mine. You see that in verse 26? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our, underline it, weakness. That's, that's how we pray right now. There really aren't great prayers. There are people who pray more than others. There are only weak prayers right now. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We're weak because we have to endure the pain of waiting along with the rest of this groaning creation. We looked at it last week. If you looked at chapter 8, verse 19, and then 24 and 25, Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing. Isn't that a good word? Longing. There's, there's, we know there's more, but longing. Not there yet. For the revealing of the sons of God. 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. If you have it already, you don't hope for it. But if we hope for what we do not see, he says we, oh, we wait for it with patience. But, but there, there's, there's more here. Not only do we have to wait, 
We don't even fully know yet what we're waiting for. I mean, we're given some details, but nowhere near all. John, John makes it clear that we, we're, we're not going to know fully what awaits us until we see Jesus. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. You're saved now. You'll never be more saved. And what we will be has not yet appeared. You have, you have no idea. But we know, so there's the don't know, no, right? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we know enough to give us hope. We wait in hope. We know we'll be like Jesus in his glorified state. But I haven't seen Jesus like that. You haven't either, I don't think. I mean, we picture all sorts of things. There are songs, hymns, verses, and they help us, but Picturing isn't, isn't, we're not like Thomas where we can touch him. Like, you know, when Michael Smith was still cool. We can only imagine that song. And this, Paul says this affects our praying. There's, there's a certain holy ignorance. Because we, we, don't, we don't have all the details to see exactly how he's shaping our lives. Because we don't know exactly what shape the clay vessel of our lives is going to take when God is finished with it. So it, it relates to prayer. Do we pray for deliverance? What if God is using this trial or this darkness to make us into what we're destined to become? I wonder how many times when Joseph was in that pit where his brothers put him and then he gets sold into slavery, we're not told in the text, Joseph was a godly young man. I wonder how many times he got up in the morning and just said, God, please deliver me. I don't deserve any of this. Not fair. He probably asked for deliverance a thousand times. And what God was doing, of course, was getting him ready for a position of leadership in Egypt because he knew all of the Jews were going to be coming down there and Joseph would play a very key role. So, do I pray for deliverance? What if God's using the trial to make me into something to suit his purpose? Do I just hunker down and quietly endure? What about you have not because you ask not? Which way do I go? Clearly we need, we need help in our praying in this fallen world. And fortunately, Paul says, God thought of that. Point number two. The Holy Spirit is given to help us internally with our weakness in prayer. 26 and 27, look at them again. We've read them a couple times. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Then he describes the weakness. For we, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And here's the good thing. He who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Always, 100% of the time. So the striking thing about these verses is the description of the kind of help we get from the Holy Spirit. It's not what you might think. Because I would think, given the problem of my ignorance, 
I would think what the Holy Spirit should give me is information. That's how you cure ignorance. You give information. We don't know how we ought to pray, so the Spirit should come and tell us. Doesn't that make sense? Only Paul says that's, that's not what the Holy Spirit does. That must be the place where the page turns. He says the Holy Spirit comes, and this doesn't seem like help at all at first. What does he do? Well, he groans. <laughs> What's that? How does that help? The Holy Spirit does the groaning. The Spirit himself, no doubt. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, 26. So, so he doesn't come and answer all the questions. There are gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, that, that describe some kind of revelation and knowledge. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the general work of the Spirit in all believers. The same ones who he bears witness that they're children of God. It's, a, it's flowing along the same lines of thought. How does he help? Well, he helps us. He helps us to wait in patience, verse 25. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If you really want to be a good prayer, you have to be patient. He assures us, just, just when my own ignorance and weakness, it might cause me to doubt that God cares anymore. Maybe I just don't qualify for any answers to prayer. He comes and he assures me as I wait in his presence that, that waiting, while hard, is, is not the end of the story, that he's, he's with me, in me, right there in the middle of my darkness, my confusion. I'm not alone. 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit, here's how the Spirit helps. The Spirit in me gives me patience, understanding, wisdom to wait in hope even when I don't see, I don't even know what I'm looking for, I don't know what's best to expect. I ask because the Bible says to ask. I'll always ask. But the Spirit is able to keep me linked up with God, even when I don't see the answer that I want to see. That's the big work. And that leads Paul into his specific description of the kind of help the Holy Spirit births with these groans. Point number three. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. Here's the help, okay? The Holy Spirit shifts my attention, our attention, from our own weakness and ignorance to God's power and God's eternal plan. So after saying we don't know this, we don't know how to pray as we ought, we wait in hope, we don't see everything yet, here's what he says, 28, and we know, oh, that's what I want. I want something to stand on. 
You know, I'm praying as best I can. I'm not sure what's happening. I don't see the details of the plan, and you feel like you're treading water. How long can you sit and tread water, and then suddenly, oh, there's a place to put my feet down. I can catch my breath. And we know that for those who love God, say the next five words with me. Six words. All things work together for good. Say it again. All things work together for good. Please notice what you read and what you didn't read. There is nothing in there that says everything that happens to you is good. You're nowhere asked to believe that. Rotten things happen in this world. What we're asked to believe is, in your confusion, in your darkness, there's a God who takes, here's what he does. He takes all these things and he combines them. He works them together and does something good with them. I, it's the old illustration I've used for years. You ever? My wife makes birthday cakes, especially for grandchildren, but once in a while, even for the likes of me. And they're wonderful. The amazing thing is, if you take the ingredients one at a time, a lot of the things you put into a delicious cake taste terrible by themselves. Have you noticed that? A raw egg, multiple of flour, and what other stuff goes in there? Other stuff. Yeah, you don't need a stick of butter all by itself. But, but if, you have s- if you have someone who knows what she's doing, I guess I shouldn't be sexist. What he or she is doing. And they can take all these things and work them together. And you get something really good. See, what, what, what Paul is saying in, in, your, in your confusion, in your darkness, when you're not getting the answer you think you should get, in fact, you're not even sure what the answer should be. Remember, here's what you know. There is not one thing, here's what I know for the rest of my life. I don't know what's coming down the road for me. What I know is this, there's not one thing, there's not one thing, even something life-threatening. There is not one thing that's going to happen to me between now and eternity that God won't take and use for my good. Not one. And And he says, we know this. We know this. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm going to start wrapping up. So here Paul begins unpacking. Not what we don't know, but what we do do know. The Holy Spirit doesn't take away my ignorance and he doesn't take away my weakness. There's groaning. He doesn't come and explain absolutely everything. All the riddles of this groaning creation. But what he does is he helps me focus my attention on what I can know for sure. That's what he does. And the focus when you get through verse, you know, 28, 29, 30, 
It's all on Father God's saving work in Christ Jesus. That 30th verse, some aspects of God's work are properly in the past tense. We were foreknown, past tense, predestined, past tense, called, past tense, justified. But other portions are still in the future. And even that future glorification, glorified bodies, new creation, it's described, interestingly, in the present tense, not the future tense. And here's why. Surely, the point is that present and future don't stand in sharp contrast when God is at work. He means that in terms of any external force or power, there is nothing whatsoever can make the accomplishment of God's future work for my life any less certain than everything he did for me on Calvary in the past. Just as surely as the cross cannot be undone, all God's plan for my life my glorified body, a brand new creation, that is no less possible to undo than the past. I mean, you can't change the past, right? We say, no point crying over spilled milk. I don't know where we get that phrase. And the reason is what? Well, it's just fixed. It's absolutely, you can't change it. And that's why Paul talks about this glorified future for all of us, and he talks about it in the past tense. And we're supposed to read that and go, what? absolutely unchangeable just like something that's already happened can't be altered in any way the whole work of redemption one grand seamless event do you know why that is do you know why the spirit helps by focusing my mind there that's what he does well it seems that even in our times of weakness even when we don't know how to pray, that unlike us, unlike us, God is never in the dark. There is nothing that will be left unfinished in his plan for my life. Nothing. That's the key to that promise in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So, Viewing God's whole plan, it keeps me from making the biggest mistake I can make in my confused, limited, finite condition. The biggest mistake I can make is this. I judge God by isolated events. And that's what this text is designed to keep me from doing. Twenty-nine fills the sandwich between twenty-eight and thirty. It, it describes the, the kind of good. It's it's going to make me like Jesus. It's, if you think God's ultimate plan for your life is to make you comfortable, you're going to be constantly disappointed in your Christian walk. The ultimate goal is not even my health or my prosperity. Nothing wrong with any of those things, and God certainly certainly works overtime to bring blessing and help to his people. But to the extent that I think that's his primary purpose for my life, I will always find his ways at best confusing and at worst aggravating. Here's my close. 
You'll notice what he says in verse 29. God has this plan. He describes Jesus, and he, and he, and he, and he, and he says he's the firstborn among many brothers. You see that phrase? So here's God's goal for me. Here's God's goal for you. Remember it when you don't know why things are going the way they're going. God's goal was never just to bring his son into glory alone. In other words, God's plan has always been to have more than he had in the inner life of the Trinity from eternity past. God wants to expand that. And so Jesus is the firstborn. Firstborn. That's a fascinating phrase. There's two other places. These aren't in your notes. Uh, if you want to scribble them in or whatever, it's Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Where Paul, Paul uses this phrase more than anyone. John uses it as well, but Paul uses it most. Colossians 1, 15, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Talking about his incarnation when he took on a physical body. For by him all things were created, that's by Christ, in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But this firstborn of all creation, notice, he's the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning. Here it is again, the firstborn from the dead. All sorts of people were raised from the dead in the Bible, but none are called the firstborn from the dead. And you ought to be pleased with that phrase. If it's, by the way, it's repeated in Revelation 1, 4 to 6. So what can I stand on in times of darkness, confusion, when I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on. I pray and, I'm not seeing what I think I should see. I'm not even sure what I should see. I'm waiting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He says, well, start with what you know. God's got this plan. It's going right through to glorification. It's all centered in Christ. And, and he calls him in that Romans passage, the firstborn of all creation. He's also called the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn. If I tell you that Michael and Daisy Horbin... Paul Horbin was the firstborn of their sons. Once I say Paul Horbin was the firstborn, I don't even have to finish the rest of the sentence. You know when I say, that's my oldest brother. When I say Paul Horbin was the firstborn, you know well, then there must have been others, right? If you only have one child, you don't say he's the firstborn. It's like I, I don't tell people Rini is my first wife. So Jesus, think about it. He's the firstborn. Born. Who are the others? Well, you're sitting beside one of them. That just as surely as God triumphed through Christ, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father in a resurrection body, the first point of a brand new creation, and the Bible says he's the firstborn, there's all sorts of things you don't know, all sorts of things right now you can't understand. That's not going away. Deal with it. Here's what you know. The firstborn is there already. 
and the rest of the brothers and sisters are going to the same place in the same way. And he says, plant the flag there, not with what you don't know, but start there. And that ought to let you go home tonight happy. You might not understand everything, but know that. You're as good as glorified already. <laughs>